Hello and welcome to the 93 Talks, a podcast brought to you by the UK's largest network of state-educated university students, the 93% Club Foundation. Did you know that 93% of the UK's population is state-educated? This number is not representative of the university population and definitely not represented in the corporate world. It's our mission to rectify this and support those that make it to university. Here on the 93 Talks, we will bring you content with employers, successful professionals and community ambassadors. This is a podcast for students, by students. We are 92% Club. Serious about social mobility. Hi everyone and welcome to our podcast. I'm Ellie and today we have the wonderful Glyn Potts, the head teacher of Newman College and who has recently been appointed as Deputy Lieutenant for Greater Manchester. Hi, Glenn. It's great to have you here today. How are you doing? Hi, Ellie. Thank you very much for having me. It's a, it's a real privilege to talk to you. I know. It's amazing. We can finally get it set up. It's really exciting. Do you want to give everyone a brief overview of your position as Deputy Lieutenant? I'm only very new to the role, so uh, my knowledge of it isn't as extensive as other colleagues who, who are doing it, but uh, each county or each region has a Lord Lieutenant. The Lord Lieutenant represents the royal family in that region, not only attending events, but also supporting any charitable works and, and just generally doing the best for the community uh, that live there. And each Lord Lieutenant has a number of Deputy Lieutenants who support him or her in that role. And I'm very, very lucky to be able to, to say that in May of last year, I was appointed as, as one of the Deputy Lieutenants for Greater Manchester. Wow, that's such a privilege. We have royalty on today. <laughs> you absolutely do not have royalty on today. But it is an absolute privilege. You know, we, you know Greater Manchester um, is, is uh, you know, not originally where I'm from, but it's now my adopted home. And I'm very, very proud of, of the great many things that happen in our region. Yeah, that's amazing. So I guess what we really want to know is about your own experiences. So how has your school life shaped your values? Why is social mobility so important to you? Well, I, I had a bit of a, an eclectic schooling. My, my father was in the army and so uh, we moved all around the world. Uh, and so, you know, certainly primary schools and nurseries, uh, we attended one almost every month, it felt like. And it was only when we returned to England in 1988 that I became aware that I didn't quite fit the mould of, uh, of schooling. Because, of course, I'd, I'd been to so many varied schools, German schools, English schools, all these other little things. And my parents decided that my, my brother and I would probably best serve going to boarding school. And the army used to, and still does actually, support families in this. Now, you know, the, the concept of that was that my father's salary was, was almost 30 or 40% of the entire boarding school bill for the pair of us. So it was a real golden opportunity to get a top quality education, albeit that the, the army would pick up the vast majority of, of the bill. And really, that makes me a public school boy, which is a bit of a weird feeling for me because I don't consider myself a public school boy. And yet the reality was my schooling from around about the age of eight, nine, was in the, the uh, private sector. And what that meant was I, I was pretty much blind to what occurred in, in traditional schools. And it was only when I became an adult and then started to work in schools that I realised that it was from such a massively privileged background. And whilst I didn't achieve stellar results, because I'm afraid I was a little bit of a, a reluctant learner, I know full well that I got results that were the very, very best for me at that time because they could invest time and effort in me to make sure that I got those results. And that's 
something that stays with me and it feeds into my belief for what I do in school. So the community I serve in Oldham is very diverse, very richly diverse. We've got 1,500 young people. I say that we serve the prince and the pauper because I have parents turning up in Ferraris and I have parents turning up and I have to ask them if they'd like to eat a meal before we can talk to them. And that's really important because that's, that's the community that we serve. But because of that, it shapes my perception of what we should be doing. And I know full well, I was blessed to attend a private school. But if I'd attended the state school, I would have been a free school meal child. I would have been one of those children that we talk about that say that where we turn around and say, well, with a little bit of money, we'll overcome all of these difficulties that they've faced. And, and let's be honest with you, the idea that a thousand pounds a year can overcome generations of poverty and, and disadvantage and social structures that make it difficult is now impossible to cover. But that's arguably what the government says we should be doing. And whilst it's an admirable ambition, it's far more difficult than that. And therefore, when I came into education, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that the children that I serve had an unfair advantage of being in my school and that they knew that they could have dreams and ambitions and make a difference in the world because really the only thing that was stopping them is their, their talent and understanding of the opportunity available to them. And I was going to make sure I stood shoulder to shoulder with them to provide that. Yeah, that, that's that's amazing. When you said that you kind of, you were technically a quick skilled educated student, but you didn't feel like you were, did you kind of suffer from some sort of identity crisis? I'm saying this because a lot of students, myself included, suffer from imposter syndrome when they go on to university and then onto their respective careers. Have you experienced this? Do you have any tips to overcome this if you have? I absolutely have, have experienced it, I, but from a maybe slightly different angle. So firstly, when I went to boarding school, I had a very, very strong accent, but it was quasi-Germanic, quasi-Cumbrian, and it didn't quite fit in a public school environment. So I remember one occasion, day two or three of arriving at boarding school, I asked for the red swords. Now, forgive me, I know it's not the most culturally advanced comment, but that's what we called it in my house. That tomato ketchup was called red sauce, and HB sauce was called brown sauce, and that's the way it was as a child. And I remember being told to leave the dining room and not being fed that meal because I'd, I'd said something that clearly was below the expectation. And I realised straight away then that the, the sort of relaxed family appeal and, and, and the colloquialisms that we all use were not part and parcel of this private school environment. They, they were, in effect, pushed away. And that made me feel very different. All the other children also knew that the only reason we were there is because the army was paying our tuition fees. So... There was, a, there was a real understanding that, of course, when they started to talk about events and trips, you know, we're going skiing in Austria or we're going on a world rugby tour, you know, and that, I know that sounds bizarre, but mm. these are the things that, that my school did. There was an inherent understanding that you would be doing that, Glyn, because your parents can't afford the contribution to it because they don't earn enough money. So imposter is exactly how I felt. And I think that comes back on more occasions than, than I'd like to comment, really whether it be on your, your promotion at work or your application for a job or your completion of a degree. So I understand entirely why students like yourself may feel that imposter syndrome. But what I do to, to challenge that is say this. Firstly, that imposter syndrome is, is in you. Not many other people will see that. Not many other people will understand that. And those that do, and those that find it as a leverage for vulnerability, really aren't the people you want to be associated with. Your future and your definition is by itself defined by you and so if we play up to this imposter syndrome it is a social construct to limit the opportunity for people from varied backgrounds 
you can't go to Oxford University because you're from this town or you're from this particular group of, uh, of demographic. That's wrong. And we, we, we use them, and I think we use that imposter syndrome as a defence mechanism, or I certainly did. It's not my fault that I can't do X, Y, and Z at this public school because I'm not meant to be here, really. It's not my fault that I'm not getting A stars or whatever because I'm not meant to be here, really. You have to change that narrative because if we don't change that narrative, it is another social construct to limit the performance and opportunity of young people such as yourself. I'd really, really say imposter syndrome... If you accept it, you'll have it. If you rationalise it, if you consider why it might be that feeling is there and then look for opportunity, then it will make a difference. Because ultimately, why shouldn't you be there? Whether you're a woman heading up a, a FTSE 100 company uh, or a black student making headway in, in an area where the demographic equality is missing, why shouldn't you be there? At the moment, it's because society said so. That's just not good enough for me. Yeah, that is really interesting. I do agree that I think it's kind of a mental concept that I think students need to be aware of before they overcome it. It's something that they need to be aware of and notice they're doing it in a certain situation and say to themselves, look, this is not what actually is going on. This is not reality. This is all in my head. And then dealing with it that way. With you being a head teacher, you see firsthand how important social mobility is within not just respective careers after university, but within the whole education system. So, I mean, it stems right from the start of a child's academic career. Do you have any suggestions for governmental policy, how it could be changed to better address the social divide in education across the UK? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think firstly, um, the way in which we've commodified education and made it into a performance industry, meaning that schools are fighting against each other in localities, is hardly uh, a measure for social mobility. Uh, so so that, that doesn't work for me. Secondly, we know full well that schools like mine, with 43% of children on, in receipt of free school meals, are going to find the task of reaching the higher Ofsted criteria grades far harder than those with a lower proportion of free school meal children uh, because the system is inherently showing that those children are the children that absolutely have the poor engagement that need the opportunity for support and guidance uh, and therefore there is going to be that, that built-in challenge of difficulty. Now you either want that as a head teacher and, and relish that challenge or you go and work in a school where actually that's not an issue and you can comfortably bob along. Um, and it's, it's interesting at the moment that we've, we've, we've got this system whereby Ofsted doesn't really recognise that. It sees, for example, uh, disadvantaged uh, as important, quite rightly. It challenges school leaders to say what they're going to do about it, but then it doesn't necessarily contextualise its grading or its reports or its understanding of those kind of situations beyond an arbitrary figure, meaning that quite often parents of the locality will say, I'm not sending my child to that school because they're not performing. Well, there's no indication of whether that, that school isn't performing for your child or for disadvantaged children or for children from poorer backgrounds. It is a headline measure of GCSE grades, uh, and that's not entirely an accurate picture. And it's interesting at the moment we've got, we've got an education secretary, and forgive me, I will not take up much time talking about this because we could spend hours, but I know full well that he, he is... Uh, an Northern. He's, I think, from Sheffield, and he, he has an accent. He has a Yorkshire uh, accent. He's therefore viewed in the media as being dumb or thick. Now, that's another indicator of the risk that we've got here, because actually, he's from a working-class town who's achieved 
really well. Now, I'm not going to comment as whether or not he's doing the current post really well, but automatically the media jump on the fact that because he doesn't have received pronunciation and he doesn't speak within a particular BBC approach, that he must be less academically gifted than his peers that do. Surely that's wrong. Yeah, that that's that's crazy, and I I see instances of this happening all the time. Do you think that that will change? Do you think people will become more aware of the fact that they are putting people with a different accent into a different category, or do you do you think there's any improvement there? I, I, I hope there will be. I mean, it's interesting that in this lockdown period that we've got now, you know, university students have been absolutely. Uh, sidelined, and I think the, the the pressure that are on university students, both financially and academically, are are extreme. But of course, because we've moved to remote learning, uh, I had a conversation with a colleague at a private school locally, whose English teacher for year eleven, they only have one year eleven class. Their English teacher is currently off because they've caught COVID, and they don't have a replacement English teacher. And they were asking whether or not we would allow their students to have access to our teachers. Well, absolutely because that's about young people and their future. But it does throw up the question then, doesn't it, about what we can take as an opportunity for change to really rebalance social mobility at the end of this pandemic. Why can't we share those resources? Why can't we have the very, very best teachers delivering to children regardless of their, their position in a school or in society? Because of course, it's about the benefits of all and the opportunity to serve young people. But I, I think it has to start with a conversation from government that levelling up that term that we've been sort of beat over the brow with, I've not experienced levelling up for my young people yet. I didn't feel that my students were getting the same degree of support in October and November when 900 of them were isolating because of COVID and I had 36 teachers uh, isolating because of COVID. Instead, I felt we were being pressured. I felt we were being uh, ignored uh, and I felt that because we were a northern town, that was acceptable. So culturally, something's got to change. Uh, and for me, I think it starts with the Northern Powerhouse having greater responsibility for educational provision uh, and direction. Secondly, I don't believe we should have educational policy, policy chopping and changing every two years or three years. We should set up a, some form of great conference or, or, or well-informed conference and decide what educational policy is going to be for the next 10 years and then review it and make sure that we're always looking 10 years in the future rather than the next 24 months. Because stability is what's lacking at the moment. It makes it very difficult for parents, for students, and for teachers to support those students from backgrounds, uh, such as disadvantaged backgrounds, when we don't know what the future is going to be, and it changes all the time. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that those students from those disadvantaged backgrounds are gonna suffer more when we come out of this pandemic because of the remote learning and the 93% club are doing kind of survey thing at the moment where they're asking state school educated students or students from disadvantaged backgrounds to submit pictures of their workspaces. So maybe if they're sharing a room with their sister and they don't have a desk and they don't have these things to kind of work with, do you think that's going to separate the divide even more? I, I think so. I think there are organisations such as the, uh, the, the Nuffield organisation, I think Sutton Trust have also said something, uh, and the Northern Powerhouse published something yesterday that said the gap uh, between disadvantaged students and non-disadvantaged has only widened during this pandemic, and that will be more apparent in northern towns, you know, by the very nature of the fact that there is a high proportion of disadvantaged uh, families and learners in those areas. Um, and, and as we're talking now, you know, the Prime Minister is about to make a statement on the reopening of schools. 
Uh, and, and you know, whatever the outcome of that is, let's not lose sight of the fact that schools, both firstly, are already open, they just have a restricted access. Secondly, we want to serve our communities, but the communities that have been hit hardest from this pandemic are working class or ethnic minority communities. Why? Generally because of the, uh, the employment opportunities afforded to those communities, the multi-generational household, and the disadvantages that set up for, for whatever reason, I'm not a scientist, for why this virus seems to be more prevalent and more deadly in those communities of black and Asian uh, ethnicity. How can we stand here, or sit here, I should say, and talk about levelling up and the difference when these questions are inherent in the, in the process? Whatever needs to happen, it needs to take into account that these areas have been significantly harmed. And a thousand pounds a year to improve that, I'm afraid, doesn't quite cut it. Yeah, I think the pandemic definitely is, like you said, uncovered some maybe systematic issues people need to be aware of. Just one for our members, if we go on to our last question. Do you have any advice for our students who want to go into teaching? Well, firstly, um, I, I hope that there are many that's, that, that they're out there that, that want to, because we desperately need quality individuals who understand the context of the children that we serve. Because, of course, you'll never be a millionaire as a teacher. But I, I, I would make a grand assumption that you'll never not be able to put food on the table either. Uh, and that's something that many of, of uh, uh, the, the 93% community may well have faced in their time of childhood because it was so stark and, and continues to be stark. If you are interested in becoming a teacher, it's a wonderful career. Uh, of course, it's a challenge. You, you, you will have as many days... Uh, where you question your ability as as many occasions where that eureka moment lifts you far higher and far further than any drug could do. I absolutely assure you that. But life isn't about staying in mediocrity. Life is about living the experience in its fullness, both positive and negative, reflecting and making a difference. And those in education, they do that. It's a community like no others. I know there are some news organisations that like to bash teachers. That's okay. Come and do the job. Because if it was that easy, uh, we would be absolutely overflowed. It's not a job. It's a calling. It's a vocation. It's something that has to capture your heart. And there will be many listening that, that will feel that way. If they have any concerns or they want to explore more, schools will welcome them with open arms. Students at university considering education. There's a program for you to visit schools. That many of the headteachers will say, absolutely come and spend a couple of days work experience. Whatever it takes, because you are the future of our country in terms of the benefits that you can bring to our young people. So I really do implore you to consider it as a role. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here today, Glenn. I think you've definitely given us a lot of food for thought. Um, and it's great to speak to people like you who really share the same values as us at the 93% Club. And it's great to hear that there's people like you doing amazing and wonderful things in the world for the next generations to come and like you say the teachers of the world I hold my hands up completely because honestly I don't think I could teach because I, I think it, the amount of patience the amount of dedication the commitment everything that you have to be so passionate about your job and so passionate about changing the lives of these people and I think I think honestly you are all amazing you're doing a fantastic job um so again thank you so much for being here I hope you've enjoyed recording with us today it's been a real pleasure and I wouldn't just say to all of the 93% club members there will be more people 
who think the way you think in schools than you can imagine. And they, are, they will be grasping at this kind of opportunity to support what you do because you are the next step in changing lives for the future generations. So thank you. Thank you so much, Glenn. Take care.